what we've been doing uh, as we've been kind of adding things to the service as we are coming out of COVID is we're adding another element to the service. We want to provide an opportunity for us to think about God's commitments on a weekly basis. And we are going through then the commitments. And each time we focus on one commitment, today we're going to focus on God loves us. And David uh, Mawa is going to come up and he's going to talk a little bit about what this commitment means and what it means to him. What it gave. I'm going to take my mask off this time. Last week I had a little hard time breathing and talking at the same time, so I'm going to do this. <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about the commitment God loves me. And when Mike asked, I was like, wow, really, Mike? God loves me? How am I going to wrap my head around something that big? I don't know. Um, but I'll start with, you know, the commitment God loves me. Um, I think if you haven't read it, I, um, you know, it's pretty pretty simple. and it's But it's much bigger than how it reads in the God loves me. There are so many verses about God loves me and um, he first loved us, and, and we can help share that. But what this commitment means to me um, really is kind of centered around for a large portion of my life. Um, God loves me was a really hard concept for me to grasp. As I began to spend more time reading and thinking about God's commitments, it became clear to me why my understanding of God loves me was really hard for me to feel secure in. As it turns out, my life experiences around love have all been based on our human imperfect love, not God's perfect love. For example, as a kid growing up, I would feel my parents loved me, and they would say that, but then I'd get a spanking for this. Yes, believe it or not, I got spanked. I mean, I'd get scolded for that. I never really got everything I wanted for birthday or Christmas, so did they really love me? I mean, socks again for Christmas? That was really kind of hard for me to understand. It was confusing. And then as I got older, relationships. You know, oh, I love you. Oh, I want to be with you. And then, oh, I'm mad at you, and I don't want to be around you anymore. They really love me? I must not be measuring up. I don't know. I'm maybe not worthy of being loved. Even some church experiences in my past, the general summary of the message of God's love was that God was watching me. He's keeping score. Oh, that one? Yeah, that one's going to come back to haunt me. If I could be good enough, if I could give enough for long enough, maybe I could measure up. Maybe God would love me enough. But really, how likely was that? I mean, I knew myself my whole life, and there are many days I didn't really like myself very much, so how could God really love a mess like this? I don't know. As it turns out, like I said, all of those experiences were based on notions and reviewed for you the lens of imperfect love. Reading God's commitments over and over began to change my beliefs and my behaviors. I came to understand that Jesus arrived to reveal the Father, to reveal who God was. As we approach Easter, an image you're going to see often is of Jesus on the cross with his outstretched arms. I don't think it's a coincidence, and I don't think it's just a dramatically sad image. I think it's another reveal of who God is. Arms outstretched, 
come here. I love you. There's no one outside that reach of God's love. That love is woven through every promise and every commitment. God sees us. He sympathizes with us, deals gently with us, and so on, because he loves us. I now believe that we have moments where we experience God's love. Those times where we don't feel like we really measure up, aren't really good enough, didn't give enough, yet people still loved us, or we were able to show love to others. I think that is God coming through us, continuing to reveal himself to us and to help us know that he's in us. It helps us to draw closer and to a better understanding of who he is and his promises. It just takes time, and it takes some grace to understand we're still human and we love him perfectly. I now believe there's nothing I can do to measure up. I don't have to. There's nothing I can do to make God love me more. And there's nothing I can do to make God love me less. That allows me to breathe and be gentler with myself and with others. He loved me before I had a chance to not measure up or a chance to mess up. His love is perfect and complete. Just keep focusing on his promises. Thanks, David. We're going to think about gospel. Let me, let me lead us in prayer. God, thank you for your love. And it really is the capstone. It's, it's the beginning and the end. It's why you do what you do and, and why we, we want to develop a connection with you because you loved us first. Um, thanks for the season. And for how you express your love for us. I pray that we would grasp it more deeply so that it would allow us to treat ourselves and others more gently. In Jesus' name, amen. We're thinking this morning about the whole idea of gospel. As we think about words that are lost in translation, there's things about some biblical words that they kind of... We attach meanings to them over time, but we can kind of miss the deep or the original meaning. And we're going to think about gospel a little bit. The word gospel literally means good news. When we think of the gospel, we might think of rules to obey, or we might think of some action to perform. What do you think of when you think of gospel? Somebody brings up gospel. And what is it that we're supposed to do in response to hearing about the gospel? Actually, the word gospel means news to believe. And in particular, good news to believe. That's what gospel means, good news. And with respect then to hearing good news, what is it that you do with good news or news in general? You don't do anything about news, you believe it. And that's what we come to when we think about gospel. Gospel is good news, and what God would have us do is to believe this good news. And let's think about that in a little bit. The word gospel wasn't just used in sacred settings, it was used in secular settings as well. In ancient times, a ruler's birth or 
his enthronement or his speeches, decrees, and acts, these constituted good news. And what would happen? Heralds would be dispatched to proclaim this secular good news, this gospel. Let me show you an example of a decree honoring Augustus in 9 BC, where his birth date was designated to be the beginning of the civil year. Here's what it is with this decree, just to give you a sense for what gospel was like in a cultural, secular setting. Whereas the providence which has ordered the whole of our life has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving to it Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending in him, as it were, a savior for us and those who come after us to make wars to cease, to create order everywhere. Whereas the birthday of God, Augustus, was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings that have come to men through him, Paulus Fabius Maximus, the proconsul of the province, has devised a way of honoring Augustus, which is that the reckoning of time for the course of human life should begin with his birth. The news would have impacted a Roman citizen and their thoughts about the future. Hearing this decree about Augustus, and if he liked Augustus, it would be good news. The good news was significant because it had future implications. And that's the way it is with news like this. Consider how you, as a U.S. citizen, if you were a Republican, felt in 2016. That would have been good news, and you would have had the sense, and you would have believed and adhered to the good news because of what you saw the next four years bringing, or consider if you were a Democrat in 2020, the same kind of thing. Good news, gospel, not just because of what it meant for that day, but what it meant for the upcoming years. Um, The good news in the Bible concerns the installation of a divine king. That's what the good news is about. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been enthroned as the king of the world and as the savior of mankind. The history of mankind would be defined by his life and death, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And I guess the question that we ask then is, why is his birth such good news for the world? Why is his birth gospel? Why, his, why is his installation as divine king gospel? Good news. In order to understand the good news, we first need to understand the bad news. Only this divine king can free mankind from the present evil regime. And if we don't really understand the present circumstances under which we live apart from Christ, we really can't appreciate the gospel. We really can't respond to the good news until we knew the bad news. And we talked about this last week when we talked about sin and the way Paul described our problem. Here's what he said, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. He goes on to say, I have the desire to do what is right, 
but not the ability to carry it out. It says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. If you look at those statements and just try to take those in, what is his problem? He indicates his problem is our problem. What's the problem here? He ends up diagnosing the problem for us. Look what he says. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He says, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. What Paul identifies as the problem is sin living inside us. And it's really important to understand when Paul talks about sin living within, sin is not just an act. Actually, we talked about it this way last week. Sin is a controlling power, not a controllable choice. Let's take a look at that because, again, we can't understand a solution if we don't understand the problem. And what Paul identifies is that sin is not just something we do. Sin is a power that controls us. It's not a controllable choice. It's a controlling power. Um, Paul doesn't blame God, and he doesn't even blame himself. He blames sin. So is our issue then, that we deal with an absence of self-control. We could say that. Do you know what Paul says? Our issue is not culturally, globally, is not an absence of self-control. The problem is the presence of sin control. Sin as a power, not just as a choice. Sin is like a slave owner. Okay, so we can't solve a problem or appreciate good news until we diagnose the problem correctly and understand our situation. The problem is not that we deal with a lack of self-control. The problem is the presence of sin control. The problem is spiritual slavery, sin living within. That's what Jesus comes to solve. Not to help us make better choices. Jesus did not come to help us make better choices. He, helped, he came so that we could be redeemed from being underneath bondage to sin as a power. Uh, Paul provides us with another illustration in Romans chapter 7. Look what it says. He equates the problem with marriage. That's what he says. Do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. There is a binding law which exists 
at this time with respect to marriage. So a woman who was unhappily, let's say, awfully wedded, was in a position where the only way she could legally come out from under that marriage is if her husband dies. Then she's free from the law because of the death of her husband. Now, he, Paul, and he's talking about this, it's really not talking about divorce and remarriage on a social platform. Here's the way he applies it. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. What it's describing here, the old and new covenant are like two different husbands. To be married to the old covenant is to be awfully wedded. To be married to the new covenant is to be happily married. And he goes on to talk about why this is so. When he talks about the being awfully wedded, the old covenant has commitments, commandments, and consequences. The commitments that God will do things for us, the commandments, if we keep the commandments, he will bless us. If we don't keep the commandments, he curses us. And the consequences of obedience and disobedience are pretty severe. If you look in the chapters in the first five books of the Bible, which talk about the blessings and curses that attend obedience and disobedience, the, I think the, there's like one chapter that describes um, blessings and about three times as many that, that describe the curses or the, the punishments for disobedience. Um, there are commitments, commandments, and consequences. And the new covenant is very different. The new covenant, it's just commitments. God says, and we've, we look at this, he says, I will put my law in your mind and write it on your heart. I will be your God and you will be my person. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousnesses but, and will remember their sins no more. Um, why is it so dangerous spiritually to live under the old covenant? Why is it associated in Paul's mind with being awfully wedded, unhappily married? Um, what it says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Paul talks about sinful passions. He experienced then uncontrollable, uncomfortable unacceptable desires. There's nothing surprising here, is there? We deal with sinful passions. Unacceptable, uncontrollable, uncomfortable desires. Everybody on the planet deals with them. Maybe it's surprising that someone like Paul dealt with them. What's surprising, though, is not that he dealt with them, but 
it's surprising his answer to what arouses desires in the first place. Let me ask you, what is it that arouses sinful desires? Republican administrations? Democratic administrations? What arouses sinful desires? Money? Sex? Power? It's a question that we really would like to know, isn't it? When we are indwelt by things, desires and thoughts, the lead us in directions that we don't want to go, where does that come from? Um, Paul gives us a pretty surprising answer. Sinful passions are aroused by the law. And this is shocking in a way. Sinful passions, he describes here, are aroused by the law of God, the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments. This is something like, when you think of it, a fireman guilty of arson. If the law spreads the flames, it's seemingly supposed to control. The commandments stimulate the behaviors they prohibit. How does this work? This seems not to make sense, but it's what Paul describes, and it's part of what Jesus comes to free us from. So we really do need to understand it. There's an illustration, I've described it before. It's a story about a woman who married an individual, and he gave her a list of rules that she needed to follow. And if she followed the rules, he would love her. And if he didn't follow, she didn't follow these 10 rules, he withheld his love. It's very performance-based. What ends up happening, she didn't like life under this man, but she was married to them, and she stayed in, and he died. She remarried and married another gentleman who his love was different. Like as David talked about, his love was different. It was not as conditional. It wasn't conditional. He, he wasn't perfect, but he was a lot better than the husband. He didn't give her 10 things she needed to do in order to stay in his love. And so she was enjoying that relationship. What happened once is she was cleaning out her dresser drawers and she was reshuffling this and that and she reached and she hit something. And it was seen like a piece of paper. And she took it out, and the husband had actually given her the list. And she found the list that her first husband had provided, and it froze, and it, it chilled her heart. But then she looked at it, and she looked at the things. And what occurred to her, she was doing all ten of those things for the one she lived with. But the motivation was completely different. It wasn't, I need to do these things in order to keep his love. It's, he loves me, and therefore, I want to do these things. And that really describes the difference between the old and the new covenants. That when we are in a position where we need to do 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 in order to be loved, we do it, but there's a sense of resentment and remorse underlying it, and it actually 
causes us to deal with thoughts and feelings that drive us away from loving God, ourselves, and others. It really does. It leads us away from loving God, ourselves, and others. And on the other side, what the new covenant indicates is God is merciful to your unrighteousnesses and remembers your sins no more. What that says, and we've talked about it before, your sins under the new covenant don't change God's attitude towards you. He doesn't love you more before you sin and less after you sin. That doesn't feel right to us, but just I want you to think about it. What would happen if you believed that? Seems frightening. Say, well, if I believed that, I'd do whatever I wanted to do. I would be more disobedient. It's not the way it works, is it, David? Not the way it works. We love because he first loved us. Do you know what your greatest need is? It's the same as my greatest need. We really, really need to know how deeply God loves us. Because love begets love. Love begets love. Our love is an echo of his love. That's the way it works. We love because he first loved us. And here's my recommendation. I've talked about this before. There's a prayer that I pray just about every day. And I mean it every day. God, reveal yourself to me. If we come to know God and his love a little bit more and more over time, a little bit more and more, it does change our heart. And we find ourselves stepping into the kind of mindset that this woman stepped in when she was married to a person who didn't lay down the law for her. Um, Sinful passions are aroused by the law. Why are we talking about all this? Because this is why Jesus died. Here's what it says. It says in Romans 7, 4, you died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another. What he's describing here is becoming divorced to the old covenant and married to the new. We could put it another way, being lawfully widowed. How do you go from being awfully wedded to the old covenant to be happily married to the new? To be, and how that happens is that we might become lawfully widowed. The only way you can come out from under old covenant jurisdiction is through death. It's the only way. Death cancels the jurisdiction of law. That's what Paul said. And and so we can do it one of two ways. We can die or we can put our faith in Christ. He died. His death to law becomes our death to law if we believe in him. It's as if we are crucified with him, buried with him, and raised with him. And 
then what happens, it puts us above the level of jurisdiction under old covenant law, which means God is not counting. What it means is, well, this. I'll be merciful toward their unrighteousnesses and remember their sins no more. This is the good news. Good news is something that he would have us believe. And the good news is this. Because Jesus came and died, we have the opportunity to come out from under the jurisdiction of the old and under the jurisdiction of the new. And when we understand why that's necessary, we embrace this news. What you're doing right now, you're sitting in a seat. Let's say that chair represents the promises God makes. Um, I think any one of these chairs will hold me up. Now, you'd agree with that, wouldn't you? Why aren't these chairs holding me up? Why isn't a chair holding me up? Because I'm not sitting in it. Let that chair represent God's promise. That through faith in him, if you believe in the good news, why he came to set you free from being under the old and under, that's why he came. And if you believe it, you... And if you rest your weight on it, see, let that chair could represent a promise, but it won't keep me up if I'm not sitting in it. So I've asked this before. If God would ask you, why should he let you into heaven? What would you say? You come up to the, you come up to the gates. I don't know if there's gates. And God says, why should I let you in? For most of my life, I would have said, because I Go to church because I give, because I do this, because I serve at the banquet, because I, because I, because I. And what does that say about who I'm trusting in? I'm trusting in me. Do you know the answer he's going to want? Because you sent your son and in him... I am embraced by eternal love. So because Jesus died and I no longer am under the old, but I'm in the new, I am a son or daughter. And God's going to say, that's exactly right. Come in. If you, and because we hear the good news and believe it, you are secure in him. And what he says to you, he is merciful to your unrighteousnesses and remembers your sins no more. How do you apply that? We talked about this thing, and I'll close with this. The time that's most difficult to believe the good news is when we do something wrong. When we do a sinful thing and we think, oh boy, I've just done it. Now God doesn't love me anymore. At that point, Stay seated in your seat. And you know what that means? You know, God, I did a thing here. But you're still in me because that's what the new covenant promises. And you're still with me. And good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed. We talk about this and we'll continue to do so. We do things that are wrong. And what God would have you to put your confidence in and sit in and really refuse to be moved. God, you are still in me. You're still with me. Good's still ahead of me, guaranteed. But I did that thing. You're still in me and still with me. Good's still ahead of me, guaranteed. That's gospel. It's, well, would you agree with me? That is really good news. We go from being awfully wedded 
to lawfully widowed, to happily married to a God whose love we will continue to experience eternally because Jesus came. That is gospel. Really good news. You know what God wants you to do? Embrace it. Put your confidence in it. Rest the weight of your eternal security in it. And when somebody tries to pull you up or tell you God doesn't love you, you stay right where you're seated because God's covenant promises he'll never rescind. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the good news. Gospel. We tend to think of gospel as something we need to do something with. We need to do an act or perform an action. It's something that we're to believe cling to and keep believing when we're judged by others or when we're judged by ourselves. You know, we might, we have, we're not perfect. We have things that we need to learn, but you don't tell us we need to be perfect in order to be loved. You say you demonstrated your love and that why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our sin cannot separate you from us or us from you. Thanks for that. I'd ask that we would believe it more deeply and remain in it and be more confident as we continue to make room for it in our mind. In Jesus' name, amen.